Welcome to Resonance, conversations about life and music, a production of Palaver Strings with me, your host, Nate Martin. So last episode, Brent Edmondson and I focused on coronavirus, and we've got some more ideas about that continuing to cover the ways in which social distancing is affecting musicians. This episode, we are returning to the original format, but I just want to take this opportunity to wish you all well, to encourage you to leave your phone behind and get some fresh air, and then pick up your phone and call somebody you love for no reason beyond the sheer joy of hearing their voice. Stay connected. Okay. Josie Davis. She is a violinist in Palaver. She is a violinist in the Halcyon String Quartet. And she is the advancement officer at Bay Chamber Concerts and Music School in Rockport, Maine. We met before she was in Palaver through family. My fiance is Josie's cousin. And now this episode is from the Palaver Podcast Archives way back in the day. We recorded this conversation in 2018. This is a year or so after she had finished her fellowship at Community Music Works and just a few months after finishing a degree at Harvard from the Arts in Education program. Josie is a very thoughtful person and is very aware of her context and takes pride in that. We talked a lot about her hometown of Waldeboro. Uh, at some point, she'll mention that the old theater is no longer in operation. Well, in the intervening years, uh, there's been a big fundraising effort and the theater is back open, or it will be back open after uh, COVID business. But Waldeboro is a fascinating community, an almost completely ungentrified coastal main town in many ways still exists in a bygone decade. Growing up there and becoming a classical violinist in that community has given Josie a really interesting perspective on her art. I'll talk some more at the end about my reflections, but for now, let's just get right into it. Here's Josie. Your beginnings in music, and I just thought that a great start would be if you could describe the town of Waldeboro. That's a great question. So, um... I'm not sure that I knew what the town of Waldeboro was when I was growing up because I lived on a hundred acres of forest on the ocean and had a driveway that was about a third of a mile to the main road where cars passed. So I definitely grew up in a little bubble of, of wilderness. Um, and when my understanding of where I was from expanded to include the town. Um, it's a, it's a very small town of about 5,000 people. And my interaction with, with towns, people was in my school, my public school. And also just anytime I would walk down to the water in front of our house, when the tide was low, I would see clamors, um, digging for clams and listening to music. And, um, that, that was kind of my circle of, of what Waldeboro was was my school and that community and also just interacting with um, local art, the arts organization at the time the theater was running. So um, Waldeboro to me now is a wonderful, very diverse kind of invisible com community in a lot of ways. And that um, when I say I'm from Waldeboro, people are like, wait, you're from Waldeboro. Did I hear that right? Because it's, it's um, a hard town. I think there's a lot of poverty and uh, 
an, an incredible sort of set culture around around tradition and the generations of people who have lived there for many, many years. And I don't fit into that. So I'm sort of an outsider still. And my parents are outsiders. What's the, like, how would you describe the tradition that you're talking like? Of- so, so there's, uh, there's many families there's with, with particular last names, for instance, who have lived in Waldebro for many, many generations. And it's impossible to be uh, a local Waldeboroughian, <laughs> unless you've really lived through that the, that many generations of people. So even though my parents have lived there for 25 years and built a house there and bought land there and are very much involved in the community, they're still not considered locals necessarily. Um, so I definitely grew up with that and, and experienced it in the public schools. So what are the, like those families, do they have, is it a kind of town where they have like, there's like the family trade? Um, the family trade is really based around shell fisheries and fishing, okay. whether it's clamming or lobstering or um, fishing for elvers or alewives. That that sort of is the culture that exists. And I think there's many people doing many other things now. But historically, it was a shipbuilding community. And then from there, um, has grown out into using the working waterfront to yeah. make money. How many people from Waldeboro end up going into the arts? Um, I don't know any others um, who have gone on to play the violin other than my sister. I think there are there's a couple people that I know of who, who went into singing and some wind, one wind player. But um, it's a really, really small community. And um, because of that, I think... There was that my musical family was not the, in Waldebro. It grew in, into other places. Right. Yeah. So my exposure to music came through my mom, who would play the violin when it was raining outside. And when I was about four, I begged and begged to start violin lessons. And she was not used to the culture of private lessons and private instruction. And it was kind of uncomfortable with the fact that I was four and signing me up to have a private instructor was not something she wanted to do. So she uh, had me wait till I was six. And then I was finally able to start playing. And my sister started at the same time. And also at that point, my two cousins, Anna and Maya, who's in Palaver, um, were playing and started playing around that time too. So every week we would uh, meet for our group class because we studied with the same Suzuki violin teacher. Who is your teacher? Her name is Janet Chiano. Yeah. And she is also the teacher of Lizzie Moore for a period of time and, and Maya and Anna and Sophie and I. Yeah. Um, so I think that community that we had growing up that we grew into in in music was really important for us. And we didn't, we never went to school on Mondays growing up through from grade one through six. Mondays was our music day. And so we would uh, have our lessons in our group classes and practice. And that was just the day of music. Do you know like what that was like for your parents to say to a school system, like our children are going to miss one fifth of the days of school. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that would fly anymore. Yeah. I think that the the policies around attendance and testing have changed since we were in public elementary school. But the teachers were really open to it and really supportive of it as long as we stayed on top of our work and were engaged 
um, it was so important. I think it's one of the reasons why for me personally, music became such a special thing because there was a day every week dedicated to it. And, um, it was fun. And I knew that it was a day that I would get to spend with other musical friends, which I didn't get in the public schools, um, at that time. So I, I look back on that as one of the best choices my parents made. I think you and your cousins made up this group of four young blonde girls <laughs> who all played violin and who played violin really well. Do you remember the the experience of being like sort of fussed over and what was that like? Um, I think as when I was very young, when I first started, the, the there was very little pressure around it for me personally. Um, my mom did not force us to practice. She didn't expect us to, um, she expected us to, to put in the time to value the teaching that we were fortunate to have and that she was making possible for us. Um, but beyond that, if we complained or, or were having, giving her a hard time about, about practicing at home, she would just say, okay, well then we'll stop having lessons. Uh, and then we'd be like, no, no, we'd like to do this. So I don't remember a lot of Per, um, tension at, at home around it. And I think the fact that my two cousins and sister were also doing it with the same teacher provided a really amazing support system and a source, it was a source of inspiration for me personally. And I think as we got older, it became a little bit more challenging um, as, as there was sort of this external pressure and we were kind of an anomaly for related Right. Yeah. How were you aware of that? If the pressure didn't come from your parents, which I know that it didn't <laughs> like the, how, where did you feel that coming from? I think people made assumptions that we were all, we, I, I feel like in a way we were kind of a spectacle when we played together. And over time we all sort of shifted in our ideas of what we wanted to do in a, in small, small ways, but from the outside, I'm not sure that, um, that those little differences were acknowledged or honored in, in, in the way that they could have been. And then I think we started to, music became, the meaning that music has grew for each of us differently and evolved differently over time. And I, I think that it's hard to, to share that um, publicly necessarily when you're not really connecting with people or when people aren't seeing your growth slowly over time. Um, so I think it was overall a, a positive thing. We played we played music together, uh, fiddle music together, and folk music together with our moms, and that for me personally was where it became the hardest. And I think for all of us, as we started to be booked to play concerts, and we all had different ideas of what we wanted those to be, and how often we wanted to do them, and people expected to see something, and maybe some of us didn't want to be that thing that they expected. So. That became tricky, and I think it was um, good that it ended when it did. But that's just my experience. Yeah. I know that from Anna's experience, there's still a feeling of uh, everybody confused all of us. Mm -hmm. Like, she gets confused for Maya all the time. Yes. Uh, and do you get confused for Sophie all the time? Yeah. And yeah. for each other and our moms yeah. would constantly be getting confused. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's really hard because we were, we're all very different people and we did right. share this love of music and we do share this love of music and it means something different for all of us, but people just expected. Right. 
it. So it sounds like at a certain point when all of you started like becoming young adults as opposed to children, like you were trying to be like, wait, no, I'm not my sister. And like, here's this reason why. Right, right. <laughs> or whatever. Is that, does that make, is That's that? That's exactly, yeah. I think, what it is. Was there like a transition point for you where you started taking music really seriously? Yeah, there is actually. And I remember it because I was sitting, my my first violin teacher, Janet Chiano, one of her most treasured values and the value that she imparted in all her students, I think really beautifully, was um, to try to to help her students appreciate the, the beauty of music and sort of its transformative effects and how listening to something can elevate you or bring you to a place that you may not get to without the music. And I remember listening to Hilary Hahn play the E major partita in the kitchen on a Saturday morning. And I cried and I was about nine years old and she, and I, and I got it. That was the moment when I realized that music could do that and that my teacher was right. Oh, that's so cool. I think that was sort of a catalyst for me in terms of realizing that this is a really powerful thing that I get to do and I want to learn more and be able to become even more expressive in it so that I can do what happened to me to other people because it was really moving. So that that was a a moment for me that I just very distinctive in my memories. Yeah. Um, And then in terms of of deciding to actually pursue music uh, in college, it was never really a a formal decision for me um, until really I was deciding where to go because I did look at everything from just liberal arts colleges to conservatories and didn't make that decision until I had a choice of where to go and sort of had to decide how much do I really want to focus on this. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued still about this idea that like coming from Waldeboro, Mm -hmm. this like very, very tiny town that in a lot of ways is representative of like an older America Mm -hmm. and that coming out of that must have felt kind of jarring Mm -hmm. at a certain point. Do you remember the first, well, I guess you've already talked about it a little bit, but like, do you remember when you began to have a more adult understanding of what Waldeboro was and did that sort of coincide with leaving or yeah, I think it did. I don't think it was until high school really okay. that I started to understand what Waldeboro was in the context of the state and then in the context of the Northeast and then in the world. I, until I started traveling and, and seeing places other than Maine, I think Maine is pretty homogenous in its makeup of, of communities and it's, that's changing. But my experience growing up felt, um, very similar. The people around me seemed similar. But then again, there was this musical part. You're right. The the arts in my life was not an experience that a lot of other people my age were having necessarily in the same kind of deep way that I was having. But at that time, there were probably about 15 or 20 other strings players my age who were taking it as seriously as my sister and I. And I 
don't think I would be a musician if there hadn't been that community. Right. And that was huge. But that was not in Waldoboro. So it was just a completely different... So you're talking about Bay Chamber, right? Yeah. And that that, Bay Chamber was was much later. There was a community that just sort of transplanted at different places. Was that Odeon? Was the the original thing was Odeon? It was originally Odeon. Yeah. And it started in a church and then it merged with Bay Chamber. Um a couple of years later and then sort of in high school my my involvement really was with the bay chamber community yeah um, so what yeah. was what was odeon and why did it you know like it, it sounds like it attracted a community of people that um that supported you as you were like getting better at violin and, and sort of deepening with violin. Mm -hmm. So like, what was that? What was that experience? I think Odeon, Odeon was founded by Monica Kelly, who's now the executive director of Bay Chamber. And she decided to form it because there was no community orchestra for young people in the region. And there were a lot of, of players who were really dedicated to playing music, but didn't have an outlet to do it with other people. So she decided to form this and, and she hired a conductor from New Hampshire to come once a week and teach. And there were about two dozen of us, I think. And we, through that, I think I learned a lot of chamber music skills and a lot about collaboration. Um, but I think that the seeds for that were planted a lot earlier by Janet, just in the group class. And we would have group classes and then they would be followed by potluck dinners. So there was a there was a sense of community around it. And going to your music class with with the group was was much more than just spending an hour playing your instrument. It really felt like a community event and a socializing, an event where you could socialize with your friends. And I got to know the parents of my friends really well. So there was just this really wonderful sense of community around it. That's such a like stupidly simple thing to do. It's just like potluck after class, right? Yeah. One thing that folks who are like in classical music right now have maybe could find issue with, especially with orchestras, is that they are have have gotten into the habit of just playing mm-hmm. symphonies, you know, and then going home, right? And I I just think that so that that just reminded me of like. Yeah, like we'll play a symphony and then like BYOB or like. (laughs) Right, right, right. And we would go to group class and then have a meal together and then run around outside for an hour with our friends. So we were getting an experience that was not just about about playing our instruments and and not focused on on pure technique building. And then you go home and do your homework. It was you you share a meal with your community and then be a kid again and tear around in a field. Yeah. But I think going back to Waldebro, I feel like one of the things about thinking about music outside of the traditional performance context where you show up and play and then leave or you show up and watch a concert and then leave. The past five years, um, my sister and I have organized a summer concert, which you've played at one of them, that is at a church in town. And every year there's a different theme usually related to the environment and we connect it with some kind of visual art that's produced in the community by students or professionals paired with music. And it's a highlight for me personally, because it's the only other night of the year 
when the street is is full of cars and it's not because there's a funeral and the funeral home is next to the church. And the only other time you see the streets packed with people walking is when there's a funeral because our local theater is no longer operating. And that used to be other venue that would attract a large crowd. So our town is is not a place that people usually come. And so that night of the year when people, when 150 people fill the space that are mostly from Waldeboro and may not ever go to a classical music concert, but they've heard of this and they know Sophie and I because we grew up in the town and we come back to do this and love doing it. That's That's so gratifying for me. And that feels right to be able to play music and share art that's produced by local people from Waldebro or or photos or whatever it is that's being paired with the music to an audience and with an audience that that is up for an experience that they're not used to being part of necessarily some are but some definitely aren't it's really amazing and the number of letters and emails that we get after those events is so inspiring to me just to see how music can be transformative, but also it can be a meeting place, I think. Um, so that that's a not because Waldoro wasn't a place necessarily for us as musicians when we were really young. It feels really nice to be able to come back as as older musicians and have a place for it. Moving down the line chronologically, you went to Oberlin. Yes. And um, you you did a double major. In performance yeah. and... I did their double degree program in performance and sociology. Okay. Going back to the thing of like crying in your kitchen, mm-hmm. <laughs> listening <Yeah>. to <laughs> Um I feel like when I went to school, uh, I lost track of that in a pretty major way. And you're giving me eyes <laughs> of, <laughs> and, and nods. <laughs> and I wonder when you felt like you had lost track of that emphasis on beauty Mm -hmm. and uh, like the sort of spiritual importance of what you were doing, what that looked like in your life. It was hard. I think that being in uh, going from rural Maine in a, in a community that was incredibly supportive and non-competitive to a conservatory environment where there were 600 other students um, from from different backgrounds and and few from very rural places necessarily or with maybe the same kind of uh, supportive, unconditional support that we had in Maine. Um, maybe a lot of the people around us hadn't come from that. So it felt competitive. And I there were so many days in the practice room when I would be in hour three of a practice session and just look out the window and think, what am I doing? Why, why am I here? Or why am I spending so much time by myself practicing this passage for the 10th time or the hundredth time for a teacher who was wonderful. And there were, there were so many amazing mentors there, but I never felt like the, I never felt like I got back to the reason why I was playing when I was at Oberlin. And I, there's only one concert and it was just a house concert. It had nothing to do with Oberlin. When I felt like my purpose was being met during those five years, um, there were plenty of concerts back at home, but at Oberlin, it was very intense and 
it felt very much focused on achieving perfection and sort of making yourself part of this trajectory of practicing a lot by yourself, going to orchestra and playing concerts every six weeks and then having a lesson and practicing some more and sort of toward this ultimate goal of becoming a performing professional musician, which I'm not sure I know what that means because it it seems like there's so many different paths that people take now with music. But for some reason, there's this mentality, maybe among faculty that have, have been part of a traditional idea of what a classical orchestral musician was. And that it hasn't been broken out of in the teaching model at Oberlin, at least. And I think that when you enter the school, you're kind of put on this path and not given a lot of opportunity to question it. Um, so I, I'm, I'm so grateful for the the hours and the time that I had there to really focus. And Oberlin is in the middle of of cornfields and there's nothing that you can really do when you're there. So, so that you spend a lot of time practicing and I would, I don't regret it. I think that putting in that time was, was really rewarding. Um, I feel very privileged to have that time because I think that, that it can be a very self-centered time of, it was a self-centered time in my life to be able to have the luxury to spend four or five hours a day by myself with my instrument. And it's very isolating, but it, it, it yielded progress. And I feel good about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oberlin has the reputation of being like the progressive university yeah. college of the United States, you know, like, I mean, like right, right. Hampshire is yeah. a competitor, but other than that, I can't think of other places that are like more that have the reputation of being more progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you don't feel like that came through in music. I think necessarily. in some, so in some regards it did. I think the fact that the double degree program, about a third of the students do it conservatory students do the double degree program. So there were about 180 to 200 other people doing it. And the faculty are very supportive of it. So what that means is that you're, you spend five years doing a conservatory degree and a liberal arts degree. So you're very integrated in what's happening in the college side of the school. And I think in that sense, it's progressive. And I think also musically, they're really experimenting with, with new music and uh, electronic music. And there's a great jazz program so there's definitely opportunity to to experience different kinds of of non-traditional classical music but in terms of the the pedagogical philosophy behind how you learn and what is expected of you i don't get the sense that it's very different from other schools and it may be much more intense at other schools um too i don't know i i don't i can't really speak from experience but having the being able to be a part of the liberal arts college made the five years possible for me because I was always able to engage in something that wasn't musically related. And I, I needed that. Yeah. Um, what is sociology? Oh man, (laughs) it's a really good question. Sociology is the study of how different social communities interact and sort of the kinds of, oh man, I'm botching this. I'm trying to think. Uh, like good, uh, borders? 
yeah, sort of th- thinking about how to how communities work together and live together and coexist together and the barriers that that maybe keep that from happening. Um, so there's a lot of conversation around race and class um, and, and diversity and inclusion. And I think my my focus was on rural sociology, um, the sociology around climate change and, and, envir- and environmental issues in the world. And then my the thesis that I wrote was about um, music educational opportunities for young people in the U.S. and how, to what extent they're ex- accessible to different groups of people. Did you focus in your thesis on rural? No, I, it was much more general like than that. Yeah, America. And yeah. I found out early on that there's just very little research right. around it. And I think it's changed since, since I graduated from Oberlin. Yeah. But at that time, there was very little written about it and and very, very little with any sort of sociological bent, even though it may have that. It wasn't sociologists haven't really studied it. It seems to me like uh, there was this period of time in your life spent in a cornfield where you got really good at violin and also learned a lot about what interested you about how music was happening in America. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you've kind of followed through on that recently. Does that seem right? I love that. That's so helpful to hear it coming from someone else. <laughs> um, yes, I think that's very true. And when I finished Oberlin, I... I, all, many of my friends were on the track to go get a master's in music. And I also was on that track, but applied for this fellowship, um, at community music works in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a nonprofit organization that offers free string instruction to about 120 young people in the urban neighborhoods in Providence. And I applied for this two-year fellowship to do some teaching and play chamber music, and then also applied to some graduate schools and was very drawn to this model and to the idea of spending two years doing something in practice that I had been studying in theory. And I am so glad that I decided to do that because I think it completely changed the trajectory that I could have been on. And it's, it then informed what I did after that and what I'm doing now. And, and is also, I think, really exciting to me to see how Palaver is, is, sort of adopting some of the things that Community Music Works was built on and then evolving them and growing growing them. So Community Music Works, and you gave like a, a general description of what it was, but can you describe like, you spent two years there, right? Mm-hmm. Can it, and can you describe like what your work was there on a sort of day-to-day basis? Yeah, so as a fellow, we wear a lot of different hats and so a, a typical week would involve teaching a studio of about 12 private students who would come once a week for a lesson for 45 minutes. And then I would also teach a group a group class um, once a week. All the students in the program come together for a, an afternoon of music making. So I would facilitate and lead classes on that day. And then we are also expected to be performing members of the Community Music Works Collective, which is a 
a conductorless orchestra that does full group performances and then smaller chamber group performances in a series that runs in Providence throughout the year. And one of the the performing values that the organization has is to take classical music and play it in places that aren't concert halls. So we would do a series of, of performances in a taqueria or in an outdoor space or a community center or a soup kitchen. So there are, there are so many different venues that we tried to, to play in. And that was part of the, the experience too. So there's teaching and performing. And then I did a lot of work in sort of the arts administration side of, of running the nonprofit. So that was like fundraising and marketing and tried to take advantage of the people who do it there who were not take advantage of them, learn from them. <laughs> tried to learn from the... <laughs> squeeze yeah. them. No, there's, they were, it's a in, really incredible um, community of staff people that work at Community Music Works. And I really wanted to learn from them and and sort of yeah because they do a really amazing job how do they select students so the way it works is that you the students at community music works have to come from a a certain zip code there's five i think five or six zip codes Um, and if you're from that zip code you can apply to be in the lottery and there's a wait list of about 200 students. So I think many people sign, many parents sign their kids up when they're born because it can take up to five years to get off the wait list. And once you're off the wait list, you're given a spot in the program and you can be in the program from when you're, I think, six or seven through high school. And by the time you get to high school, the program, the curriculum evolves to include a lot of work around social justice and civic engagement. So high Many high schoolers spend a day a week also playing chamber music and sharing a meal together and having uh, an hour-long conversation about a social social justice theme, which becomes the theme for a big project that, that these high schoolers do over the course of a year. What's the project? It changes every year. So the students come up with an issue in the community or a, an issue nationally that they really care about that's related to social justice and design a project around it that involves music making and community and usually a panel discussion of some kind. And they develop an an evening out of it, an event out of it. But they spend the year practicing lots of different skills and learning different things about that issue and then decide how they want to present it. So for instance, um, the year that I was there, students decided to tackle the issue of who is music for and that became the theme. And so they did interviews and they had a lot of conversations together and hired facilitators to come share their experience and their perspective and then created a, an event around that question and had community members come and and talk about it. So even the event itself could have been, there was always food and tables of people and you were often at a table and this the kids figured out how to... Um, facilitate these discussions with whoever showed up around that that theme but the the events were very participatory and they would create an, an, an evening out of it with lots of different activities this is amazing <laughs> yeah they were amazing i had no idea they're called they call them the the youth salon it was the annual youth salon and the high schoolers organized the the whole thing how many um 
how many students per like graduating class ish? It's pretty small. I think the graduating class is usually around five or six. Okay. But they're in in this group of students, which is called phase two, and it's the most advanced group of students, and I would say the most dedicated because they usually have to give three days a week to community music works related events. Full days? Three afternoons. Three afternoons or okay, evenings. Right, yeah. yeah. Um and I think there are around fifteen or twenty who who would facilitate these and spend the year working on them. Whoa. This is really blowing my mind. I didn't know about this. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't describe it very well. But basically no, what no, it is. No, I, like I'm the, the the reason I just want to clarify the reason why my mind is blown has nothing to do with how you just like the quality of your description, the quality of your like everything about your description. I'm like, wait, that's a really good idea. And that's that's also a really good idea. Like they I mean, they're 20, 20 years down the line and I'm sure it didn't start that way. But um, like I know. Palaver is thinking towards a school mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, like all of these ideas are really important questions that, you know, we were talking earlier about like, you know, Oberlin being progressive, but the conservatory in terms of its pedagogy not mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. particularly uh, progressive. And I think that that is basically, you know, what's happening with classical music as a whole. Right except a community where is it music works like <laughs> yeah they're really trying i think that they're really trying to figure out a way to to help make classical music more accessible and more understandable and relatable and especially because at community music works the majority of the high schoolers participating in these programs are hispanic or african american and and classical music is even less part of their culture historically than it may have been in my community of musicians growing up in Maine. And and I think that the kids who go through the phase two program and, and create these programs, they learn about chamber music skills and they learn about collaboration and they also learn public speaking skills and they learn how to take a really, really hard issue that's difficult to talk about and really embrace it and use more than just words to unpack it. So in this case, they're using music or even sometimes visual art. And they're talking to people who are older and people who are younger and their siblings and their family members to try to figure out how to bring all of these different things together, which is really amazing. And it, I think it, the thing about community music works that's so hard to describe is that the experience involves so many different threads together. And that's what CMW is. And it's so hard to capture that because I think that CMW works best over a period of, of 12 or 15 years as someone is growing up in the program. And that's really interesting to think about for Palaver as we think about really the experience of students starting when they're in the lullaby project, not even born yet necessarily, going through high school or beyond. And I'm really excited about that idea. Because I think there's something to be said about mentorship over time and community over time and what that can really mean. And I think that is what I hope classical music is. If there's a place for classical music, I think it needs to be embedded in people's lives to that extent. Do you feel like, so you, you just did this mm, master's degree at Harvard. The, the, mm-hmm. you, the degree you have is, what's it called? 
the program is called Arts and Education. Okay. And I think it could, what you get out of that program is whatever you want it to be because it's very open-ended. So I don't, I, I, I don't know how I feel about those words, but. I don't know what I have. <laughs> I don't, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in education and I'm a violinist and really committed to the arts. And I think that I went into the program craving one more year where I could just focus on learning and learning from people from with that also are very committed to an art form, but it in most cases wasn't music. It was theater or visual art or writing. So that was really amazing for me to be in a community of people that had similar experiences, but doing something very different and with people who were just as passionate about that thing, whether it was writing or so, I don't know. And I think that when I think about, uh, there's so many parts of my life, there's the performing musical chamber, chamber music part of my life. And there's the teaching part of my life. And there's being really committed to trying to figure out how classical music still has relevance and can still be really meaningful to all different kinds of communities. Cause I really struggle with that. And then there's the part of my life that's around organizing and, and administration and making different projects happen. And I'm, and I'm really trying to figure out how those all come together in a way that's personally sustainable and in a way that's fulfilling. And I think that Palaver does that in a lot of ways. And I'm really excited to be able to pour more energy into the growth of the, of the music programs over time. But I'm still struggling personally to figure out where the balance is and where I lean because right now I'm trying to hold up four different stilts of this thing that I'm really passionate about and I'm not really sure how I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you are you aware of the the places where you're experiencing excess in that like where you're going too far in one direction and tipping over? I don't know. I, I think last year was definitely a tipping point. I, I, it was the first year since I was six years old when I haven't practiced almost every day. And it was really hard. Even if it's just like 15 minutes a day or listening to music or playing a duet with my sister, I, it was really hard to be so focused on the academic world of learning because I hadn't had that. And I think that's why Oberlin really worked was because I was able to juggle both and it was done by a lot of people there, but it was, it was really tricky. So I learned last year that I need more performing, more playing in my life. Why? Because it's a place for me. It's to, to, to be creative. I think yeah. it's sort of like the time of the day when I am disconnected from technology completely, which is, which is becoming a lot harder for me to do. And it's, it's beautiful. And I know that the, the time that I put in playing is usually going toward some final thing, like a concert or a rehearsal that is with other people. So now that I'm not in school and I can practice for a couple hours every morning, it just feels like the most amazing thing to be able to spend that time. What happens to you? What was happening to you when you weren't able to have the creative time of practicing and performing what did you notice about like how did you know that there was something off well the instinctual feeling 
and probably the feeling that I get, the trained feeling is like guilt. Like I'm not doing this. I feel really guilty for not doing it because it, oh. for, for a lot of my life, I think, and especially in conservatory, when you don't, when I wasn't practicing enough or when I didn't feel prepared enough, I felt guilty, which is not a healthy feeling to have. And I think that that's a learned feeling and not something that it's a problem. But then it turned into just this feeling of just a piece of my well-being or a piece of me that was just missing. Um, it's like a, it was a hole in my weeks and in my days. And I never felt like I got quite enough of it last year. So it feels really good to be able to fill that in, mm. in, in that way. Wow. But I didn't know. I, I would not have known in, unless I had done it that it was that important to me. So I'm not, I don't regret it. Yeah. Yeah. Guilt is a tough one. Yeah. That's a huge thing. I've, uh, that I think was also like a primary, uh, a primary like driver for me in a lot of ways that I, at a certain point just decided like, no, I'm like not going to engage in this at all. Like that was the only way I could figure out to extricate myself from feeling guilty about it all the time. Was I just like, all right, I'm not going to play. Like I don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> um, and yet it gets you there. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It does. There's like, I, I'm not, I, I don't believe that for me, it doesn't work to just, to just accept where I'm at every time I'm at it. Because I think there's, there is some, whether it's the deadline of a rehearsal coming up or, the feeling that I, that I want to show up to rehearsal, being able to give in the space and not be struggling with notes or struggling with, um, this feeling that I don't know the music well enough to be part of the experience of creating it. So, and I guess you could call it a little bit of competition, but I don't like that word. And, and guilt might help me get there, but I also think it's this, drive of wanting the, I don't know, I think it's also inspiration and sort of purpose. Those are deeper things that I try to harness. Tying it all up. It feels like community music works is trying to teach purpose. Yes, definitely. Instead of guilt. Definitely. Yeah. And I think their model from all levels operates that way. Yeah. From Which the, is... yeah. From the administrative level to the community family level it's damn about that that's good it's really good yeah <laughs> and it's not perfect it's hard it's right, yeah. really hard and i think progress has been slower because of it in terms of overall growth has been slower mm. and there have been they they've spent time going down a path for longer before realizing that it may not have been the best path to go down and then they have to turn around and, and try something new. But there's so much learning that happens. And I think that that's also a value that I have in all the work that I do is I just always want to be learning. And I really care about that from other people and personally pushing myself to learn. And I think CMW modeled that really beautifully. The question that I like to ask is a two-part question. And I guess I will let you freely transition from one to the other. Oh, gosh. Uh, it, it's just, what is like, what is your least favorite part? The, what is, what is your least favorite part of your job? And then what is your 
most favorite part of your job? Oh, um, okay. I think that my least favorite part is, is the feeling of being stuck in, um, musical tradition that has a lot of associations attached to it and feeling like I play classical music and classical music traditionally is a Western European white music. And I, I think that it, I'm not comfortable with that. I think it's true historically. And I also think that classical music is, is pretty abstract and is in a lot of ways pretty inaccessible. And I'm committed to figuring out how to present it and share it in a way that's, that dispels that association or that stereotype or stigma, whatever it is. But I think it's hard. It's really hard to do that. And I think that Palaver is, is doing a really beautiful job of, of experimenting with different ways of, of sharing classical music and also other kinds of music too, which I, I think is really important. But I think, but for me, it's really, really hard to be uh, a conservatory trained musician playing classical music, studied, having studied classical music and sort of in, expected to present it in a certain way by a certain group of people, but feeling that that's not the right way to do it. Um, but I think that the most rewarding part of, of being a musician and of my of calling, I guess you could say, is when we're able to share music in a way that breaks that stigma. And I really, really value those experiences. And I, and I don't, I can't say as a 26 year old that I've had that many of them where I really feel like I've shared this music that was written 400 years ago. And most people in the audience got it in some way or were moved by it in some way or learned something about it that they didn't know before. And I really, that's what the challenge for me is figuring out how to do that more often and sort of, yeah, figure out where the music is still relevant and still timely and still, there's so much beauty in it and there's so much um, vividness in it and I think humanity in it and also spiritualness, the not humanity in it too, that I really value, but when it works, it feels really inspiring. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is really good. It's, yeah. It's really is... amazing to just sort of reflect on these bigger questions out loud because I spend so much time thinking about them uh, and talking about them, but, but also not really, really unpacking it. Yeah. So it's really good. Yeah. I like... Uh, I think as an interviewer, I like <laughs> controlling conversations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to admit that in That's myself. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, also essentially demanding that people sit down for 60 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and talk I love about that. Thing. And just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's really, really great. Thank you. That was Josie Davis. A huge thank you to Josie, not only for being a guest on the show, but for being incredibly supportive of Resonance. I hope you all enjoyed listening in. A few things in this conversation, listening back, really hit me. Uh, One was our brief foray into the subject of guilt. (laughs) This has been a big struggle for me and is, I think, lurking just below the surface in the lives of most, if not many, classically trained musicians. There's those guys on the YouTube channel, Two Set Violins. They make light of this phenomenon, encouraging their viewers to practice 40 hours a day. (laughs) But I'm pretty concerned about guilt in my own life and in the way it has sort of settled into classical pedagogy. As I said in the interview, it does get the job done, but psychologically, I don't know. It feels weird. The other big one is when Josie mentioned all those different hats that she wears, the hat of performer, of teacher, and administrator. Balancing all these responsibilities, that's probably my least favorite part of my job, too. Every hour of every day, I am given the choice to pick up one project expressly saying no to three other projects that are important to me in different ways, important to my career, important to my soul as a creative person, and it is hard. I am learning to balance, to make sure the stress of these transitions of acknowledging those three other projects while they simmer on the back burner of my life and picking up the fourth to work on, I'm trying to learn to do that gracefully, to let whatever project I pick up consume me. Enjoy a clever edit, a really in-tune note, (laughs) a fun walk with my dog, a new recipe with Anna, quiet time when I get it. This coronavirus crisis is making me take a look at that balancing act and how it's resulted in this constant low hum of tension in my life that I only felt when it came to a screeching halt a month ago. Of course, that low hum of tension has been replaced by the low hum of pandemic anxiety. I've really got no answers about this. Uh, I just want everyone to call the people that they love and talk. In the recovery community, there is this refrain, this mantra, connection is the opposite of addiction. We're all feeling disconnected. And while addiction might not be relevant to your life, there's all sorts of smaller hurts that we are susceptible to while we're isolated. So take care. That's it for this episode. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me and is made possible by Palaver's Patreon donors with help from Brian Gilling, Brent Edmondson, Kiyoshi Hayashi, Alex Gooden, Heath Marlowe, and all the members of the Palaver team. Anna French gave me belly rubs when I got stressed out, and I wrote the theme music. That's it for this episode. Remember to take good care of your feet. They work hard. They deserve it. Buy a pumice stone. <laughs> <laughs>